Well, it's an anniversary. Certainly, it's not a happy one. As a uh, Christian leader told me this fall, he said it will be interesting how this time in history will be recorded. Uh, two years ago, on March 20th, the world stopped and it was shut down two years ago. And as much pain has come, as much uncertainty has come, and with it, much chaos has come. There are new global practices that have entered our culture, and uncertainty has come like what's next. And as Eric just prayed, <clears throat> the war in Ukraine seems closer because of our global connectedness. And that's in the midst of a beautiful spring day and the distraction of March madness. So we wrestle with this idea, what is solid? What can one hold on to? What will truly last? I am so delighted that you are here this morning on a number of different levels on this two-year anniversary because there is hope. There is greater assurance that you can walk out of this sanctuary and walk through this week knowing what is true and what is confident and what is solid. For two millennia, for 2,000 years, Christians have gratitude gravitated to a symbol that is in our scripture text this morning. It's the symbol of an anchor. In fact, archaeology has found over 66 anchor, anchors that have been sketched in catacombs, not because of fishing, but because it reminds us of Jesus. So in this message, we will look at greater assurance in our study in the book of Hebrews. I want to invite you to find a copy of the scriptures, whether it's in print or it's online. And you can find the Pew Bible, uh, uh, Hebrews chapter 6. It's on page 1036. I'll give you a chance to get over there and take a look at it. And today, we conclude in our English Bibles, chapter 6, the best way to understand the book of Hebrews is by seeing it in a long sermon with repeated themes again and again and again. And one of the repeated themes is Christ is greater. Christ is greater. And today we'll look at greater assurance. But the first part of chapter 6 that we looked at last week was a difficult passage of Scripture. We were to become, we were to be aware that apostasy is possible. We wrestled with that. In chapter 6, verse, one, verse 4, there's this word that says it's impossible. It's impossible for someone who has known Christ, walked with Christ, loved Christ, to come back from repentance and, and to repent. How do you navigate through that? Well, that same word impossible is then used later in verse 18, and it tells us what's impossible for God to do. Impossible for God to do. Maybe you've heard this before. Some would say, is it, is it impossible for God to make a rock so big he can't pick it up? Well, I don't know the answer to that, but I do know that the Bible says that there are certain things that are impossible for God to do. And we're going to take a look at that. So this second part really is a contrast. What, what's really the contrast, the first part of chapter 6 is that apostasy is possible. You, you, you learned that in chapter 6, and if you want to go and listen to that message, you're more than welcome to do that. But in this passage of Scripture, we're going to find out this, that assurance, assurance is possible. In fact, it's not only possible, it is actually promised, and we're going to get into that. So 
Before we take a look at the scriptures, let me just kind of give you a preview of where we're going to go with greater assurance. First thing that we're going to look at with greater assurance is God's oath. And you'll see how he certifies that, notarizes that, confirms that, stamps that, and you go, hey, it's a done deal. Then the second place that we're going to go as we look at the scriptures is we're going to take a look at God's promise. And, and it's not just for someone else, like old guy a long time ago, but we're actually included in that. And have you ever come to a passage of scripture before and you go, oh my, oh my word. I mean, like Jesus is talking to moi. You're going to find that. And the third thing is this. We have this great assurance because there is none like you, none like you, the faithful one, the anchor. It's right here. It's God's living, living proof. Okay, did you find a copy of the scriptures? We're going to take a look at Hebrews chapter 6, beginning in verse 13, and we're going to cheat a little bit. By cheating, we're going to go up a couple verses. We're going to start in verse 11, and you'll see where we get the title for this sermon. Because the sermon is called Greater Assurance. And the ESV actually uses the word instead of fully realized. It says full assurance. That's where I got that idea from. And then in verse 12, it tells us who to imitate. Because we're going to meet Abraham. He's the one we're to imitate. And, oh man, did he have to wait. 25 years he had to wait for the promise. I don't think it could last five years, five months, maybe five days. That's who we're supposed to imitate. So reading in Jesus' name. You get it there? Verse 11. We want each of you to show the same diligence to the very end so that what you may hope for may be fully realized or full of assurance. What we, we do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate, here it is, those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. Now our text, and now the imitator, the one who's worth imitating. Verse 13. When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently for 25 years, Abraham received what was promised. People swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all arguments. Because God wants to make the unchangeable nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. But God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf. He's become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. This is God's word. It is true. It is always going to be true. Let's pray. Gracious Lord Jesus, you are the one and only one who sits enthroned today at the right hand of the Father Almighty. Today you intercede on our behalf. You did not take a break from your role as eternal loving shepherd. After you ascended to be reunited with the Father and returned to the glory you had before you took on flesh, 
Today you continue your role of King of Kings. Today you continue your rule as Lord of Lords. And as always, you are the second person of the Trinity and now you are advocating for us, defending us, pleading our case before the Father. No other has the rule or function. No other gods can mediate between our Holy Father and humans. Certainly no Christian saint can. There is only one God and one mediator between our Father and people. It is you, Jesus. So many of us in this room know you, but there may be some who do not know you yet. And I pray that you would use this message to help my friend take a step closer to knowing you. So I pray that you would take your word, Lord, your power, Lord, to extend your fame and kingdom, Lord, for your glory, Lord. And all the people of God that could agree said, Amen. Amen. Well, I want to encourage you to uh, find an insert in your bulletin if you're watching online. We're so delighted that you're here. Uh, you can uh, find that by downloading it as well, too. And the reason why we do this each week is one, certainly to follow along, certainly to get more out of it. But there's also two other reasons. One, for you to go back and study it on your own and watch what the Lord will do. And also to be ready to share this message with someone else. So you're taking notes for two. Here's a few takeaways that we can understand about this greater assurance. Number one is this. The greater assurance we have is because of God's oath and he swore by himself. Let me repeat that again. God's greater assurance because of God's oath, and he swore by himself. In fact, the word swear is used three different times, and it's actually swore, swore in one of the verses. Now, let's just be up front right away what it doesn't mean. This is what it doesn't mean when we say the word swear in this context. What swearing in this context doesn't mean is blasphemy or profanity. That's not the way that it's used here. In, in, in swearing in this way, it means to make a covenant. You can bank on it. You can notarize it. Think about all the ways that we take an oath or that we swear. Things like this. I swear on my mother's grave, which is in Reeseville, Wisconsin, near Beaver Dam. Have you heard people say that before? Have you people heard people say, I swear on the Holy Bible? Have you heard people swear before or make an oath by saying, cross my heart and hope to die? Have you heard people do this before? They, they make the sign of the cross, and then they point up. But did you catch the double swear swear that is used here? God himself takes an oath by using his name. There is no higher power. You sang it. Then God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And this oath that he gave to Abraham, he actually gave seven times. He starts it in Genesis chapter 12, and he said, I'm going to make you a great nation. Look at the stars. Can you count them? And maybe you got lost somewhere in the process. Can you count them? You will have that many descendants. That was oath number one. Oath number two came in Genesis chapter 12, 4 through 9. Oath 3, 13, 14 through 18. But it's oath number four in Genesis chapter 15 on page 12 that we're going to focus in on. Oath number four. I want to encourage you to go to your left, find it, and we'll walk through it. Now, the beautiful part about this as you're following this is that Abraham doesn't, you know, once all these oathing is going on, it's not like he doesn't flub and stumble and fall. 
Following this, he makes a massive blunder by taking Hagar as his quote-unquote wife and having a child, Ishmael, and it's a mess. And that gives me hope. That gives me hope. So oath number four, on page 12, we'll pick it up in about verse 9. He repeats the oath about having great descendants. And then God our Father does something incredible, and I'll show it to you. Beginning in verse 9, So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. And Abraham brought all these to him, and he cut them in two. And he arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. The birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abraham drove them away. And as the sun was setting, verse 12, Abraham fell into a deep sleep. This is where I have to say no sleeping in church, okay? But he's getting his, what is it called? Circadian sleep cycle, okay? He's asleep. He's not active. He's out of it. Okay, what's your point? Here's the point. As he fell into a deep sleep and a thick, dreadful darkness came over him, then the Lord said, and he says this prophetically, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in the country, not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated there, but I will punish the nations. They serve as slaves, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here for the sin of the Amorites and has not yet reached its full measure. Pastor Kirk, what's that all about? That is the description of what will happen with Moses and the children of Israel for 400 years. God is saying it prophetically. This is what's going to happen. Now watch what the action is. This small little verse is powerful. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen and Abraham is... A smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. The fire pot is a symbolism of God Almighty. He appears in a burning bush. He appears in the tongues of fire. And later in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit comes like tongues of fire. This is God Almighty. And in that day, a covenant was made when there would be a broken carcass and another broken carcass and a covenant would be cut. Notice what the scriptures say. God made the covenant. And the two parties would walk between the bodies, walk between the sacrifices, say out loud to each other, this is what we covenant to. This is what we're going to do. I am giving you my word. The second party would say, I am giving you my word. And if I break my word, my body and my life will be like these carcasses. There will be blood. Unique is this covenant, though. Who's doing the talking? Who's doing the walking? Who's doing the coveting? Covenanting, excuse me, covenanting. Better get that straight. <laughs> Edit that. Who's doing the covenanting? It's God and God alone. He puts all the burden on himself. I will not break my oath to you again and again and again he says that 
I've listed for you in Jeremiah 34, 1,500 years later, Jeremiah describes this same kind of covenant, this same kind of cutting. God cannot, will not, ever break his oath to us. He does it dramatically here. And we can't miss the significance of that. This gives us great assurance. This gives us great assurance that we can rest, that he swore by himself. There is none like you. Here's the second thing that we can take away. Our greater assurance is because of God's promise. And God's promise is this. I have chosen you. I have chosen you. I will walk with you. I will be with you always to the very end of the age. And I will be with you. I will give you my Holy Spirit. In verse 14, there's something that English translations don't get. And they don't translate it. And it's a bummer. It is a bummer. Because it's right there. And it's like, oh my word. The Lord makes this promise in verse 14. And the literal translation both in the Old Testament language and the New Testament language, is this. I will bless you, bless you. I will multiply, multiply you. I will bless you, bless you. I will multiply, multiply. What's the significance of that? When there's a verb that's repeated, it makes it intense. As if to say, this is really super important. God has a sovereign purpose. And regardless of situations, of circumstances, of suffering and persecution... He desires to see people come to know him and to experience him and have a relationship with him. People that you love. Enemies who you might despise, he wants to know. Adversaries you might not even imagine, he wants to come to know him and have their sins forgiven and walk and abide with him. I cannot make sense out of this war and all of the issues that are coming at us. I don't know how to navigate those. But verse 18 is tucked right in here, and it says, we run to him as a refuge. The promise and the oath failing is inconceivable. This promise that he gave to Abraham waited over 25 years. He never saw many sons. He never did in his lifetime, yet he believed God. And you might be going, so how does this relate to me? Romans chapter 4, 16 says we're included. It's a powerful verse. Let's read it out loud together. On your mark, get set, read. Therefore, the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham. He's the father of us all. We teach this to our children. Father Abraham had many sons and daughters, and many sons and daughters had Father Abraham. I am one of them. I know it's crazy. And so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. If you're in Christ, you're one of Abraham's offsprings. You're heirs to the promise. And what about when God seems silent? When God isn't answering my prayer, my wife reminded me yesterday on a walk, can you imagine what it would have been to live 
in Old Testament times, between the Old Testament and New Testament. Scholars call when the last book of the Old Testament was written and the first of the New Testament was written, those were called the silent years. Where was God? Where was God? We don't get great assurance by talking about commitment or trying harder. We rest in this that God's oath is unshakable. His promise is unbreakable. He doesn't break his word. It is impossible for him to lie. And it is impossible for him to break his promise. He will rescue and he will save us. I've, it's always been his plan. That's always been his plan. Uh, someone gave this to me about 15 years ago and it helped me. This is a very macro view of the scriptures. Super oversimplification, but it works for me. It may be helpful for you. If you look at the Bible, you can divide it in this way. The first two chapters of the Bible, Genesis 1 and 2, are Eden. It's perfect. The last two chapters of the Bible is Eden restored. I know that's oversimplification. Well, what's the rest? The rest is God rescuing, redemption, miracles, and lots of messy stuff. Awkward stuff when you read it. Hard stuff when you read it. It's not all roses when you read it. There's lots of thorns when you read it. And you start that in Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, after Adam and Eve, and sin comes into the world, and sin affects us, in Genesis 3.15 is the first promise of the gospel. And you will crush his head, and you will bruise his heel. Theologians call that the first giving of the gospel, the proto-evangelium. And what happened to Adam and Eve? What happened to them? Well, God was really mad and kicked them out of the garden. Like, and really big angels with flaming swords. Well, there's another part to that. Here's the other part. In verse 22, God our Father says, they have now eaten the tree of life, and they now know good from evil. And following that, they are expelled. And you know what's behind that? Is that if they would have stayed in the garden forever, they would have lived in sin and been damned forever in spiritual darkness. God would send a second Adam. God would send another person who would die on a tree called Calvary and another person who would offer life for those who are damned, for those who are sinful, for those who are condemned. He would send another and our great assurance, our great assurance is this one called Jesus. No other name. No other name. Jesus is our anchor. And this word, this great assurance is for drifters. It's, it, that, that was the warning that we had in chapter 2. This, this word is for the immature. A warning that we had in chapter 6. Anchors are usually... The anchors usually go down. Like my friend Nick borrowed me this anchor, and he said, Kirk, it's really heavy. It's 300 pounds. 
And I've been working out lately. Um, anch <laughs> Corny joke. Anchors actually go down. But you know what's interesting about this anchor, Jesus? This anchor actually pulls us up. Today, right now, this morning at 1118 Central Standard Time, our Lord Jesus Christ is interceding and speaking on our behalf, petitioning, befriending us, and preparing a place for us. The scriptures that we read said that the, ent the anchor entered into the Holy of Holies where priests went once a year. But in Jesus' case, he made the sacrifice with his own body. And he did this for my sin and your sin and our collective sin in this room, watching online, listening to this later. Sin of omission, stuff we didn't do, and sin of commission. And then my sins and your sins and collective sins. He did this for us. James 2.10 has this crazy verse that goes, Really? For whoever keeps the entire law yet stumbles at one point is guilty of breaking it all. And when you read a verse like that, you go, well, who can fulfill all the law? Zippo. Only one. Christ and Christ alone. And as a result of paying the sacrifice, the curtain was torn. How was the curtain torn? Was the curtain torn bottom to top? No. It was torn top to bottom. And the significance of that is that the curses are gone. God did that as he cut the covenant with Abraham between broken and sacrificed and sacrifices. So God paid the debt. God the Son paid the debt. So let me illustrate it this way. Let me illustrate it with Jesus. When Jesus entered the Holy of Holies, that was a solemn place. There were only a few selected to go there into the inner sanctum into the Holy of Holies. When the priest entered, it was such a big deal that no one followed him. And when the priest went behind the curtain, let's imagine this is the curtain. And by the way, the curtain was like 60 feet high, 30 feet wide, and three inches thick. And scholars say it took 300 people when it came down to change it or to clean it. 300 people to move it. That thing was heavy. And when the high priest would go behind there, they would tie a rope around his ankle so that if he had a heart attack behind it, they could pull him out. The high priest would go on his own. No one would follow him. And he'd bring sacrifices and for his own sin. And when he went behind there, think of the piles and piles of sin that a high priest would come. Now think about Jesus taking on all the sin of the world. All of my sin would break his back. But the Bible says that he was a forerunner. Forerunner. It means, one, it's a military term that's used to have someone go ahead to explore before the army troops would advance. It was a way for them to find out if it was safe for the troops to follow. Wow. That's what he did? That is what he did. Amazing. In our tradition, we call this meal a sacrament. That's a Latin term. But the word sacrament was also used in ancient Rome. 
and soldiers would make a sacrament, which meant an oath and a pledge and an allegiance to say, I will serve. This is what God Almighty did. That's our great assurance. That he gave us his body and his blood for us to be redeemed. Wherever Jesus is, there's hope. Our hope is anchored in Calvary. That's why when all hell breaks loose, literally, only the blood of Jesus will hold our sisters and brothers in Christ. Anchors are only good as what they're anchored to. Anchors are to give stability amongst rising tides and billowing blasts of hell. Kenneth Wiest is a New Testament professor from Moody Bible Institute. His work has been super helpful in prepping these messages. He wrote this about the rich words that are used and the idea and the word pictures. And he said this, this present life is the sea, the soul, the ship, the hidden body of the sea, the hidden reality of the heavenly word. The soul is seen as storm-tossed on the troubled sea of life. The soul of the believer as a temptest-tossed ship. It is held by the anchor within the veil, fastened by faith to the blessed reality within the veil. We have one that's a forever priest. Forever priest. When he walked on, his, on earth and he shed his pure H positive blood, holy positive blood, and he rose again from the dead and he ascended and sat down by the Father in heaven. This is the great assurance that we have. So I ask you these questions as we ponder this message, as we think about this message. How dependable are God's promises? If someone were to ask you, how dependent are these promises? What would you say? I've been asked that. I said, I'm banking my life on it. I've spent my life on this. Number two, here's the second question. What ways do you see people struggling to trust God and his word today? How about you? How do these assurances strengthen your walk with Jesus? Which of them? Greater oath, greater promise, and the anchor, the great son. And finally this week, how are you doing today in terms of waiting patiently on the Lord? You might say, not so good. So, what would it look like this week coming up for you to do this? When we take communion, <clears throat> we have the opportunity to examine our hearts, to ask the Holy Spirit to show us sin, to hear the word of God, to be convicted of sin, and to run to him and ask for repentance and ask for forgiveness. So I invite you now, before we take the body and blood of the Lord, just to simply close your eyes and bow your head. And to think about what was shared today from God's Word. Ask the Holy Spirit to show you your sin.